Last week we started a series on faith as Wesley lived it. And we did so not just because he's the founder of Methodism, but also because there are some very helpful things for us to learn for our faith journey. And last week we talked about the storms of Wesley's life, a physical storm, a real storm, as he crossed the Atlantic Ocean when he came to Georgia, but then also some figurative storms that happened, some of the relationships they had that really brought him low. <clears throat> and because he was brought so low, he had an openness to let go of trying to work his way to God through his own power. And that's when he came to understand the grace of God in a very powerful way. Now, this understanding was so critical, so important to him, I would say it became the main message of all that he shared as he went throughout England in the years that would come. And that understanding has been such a major contribution to Christendom in general because it impacted him so much he began to write about it and he actually developed a theology around it that we call justifying, sanctifying, as well as prevenient grace. So I want to talk more about that so we can appreciate the gift that he's given to us and understand how we hand that out to others. And for Wesley, he drew upon this particular passage that we read today from Ephesians 2 at least 40 different times in different messages. I'm sure he repeated it many times because I imagine he repeated some of his messages as he did preach 15,000 sermons after all. And he drew upon this passage over and over. Adam Hamilton says he went back to it again and again. And there's a word in this passage for grace that's an important one. It's the Greek word kairos. It's used 148 times in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul shares it over 100 times. And when Paul describes it, he really has two different meanings that he uses it at different times. First of all is what we'd call the justifying grace that it is God's unmerited, undeserved, free expression and benevolence of his acceptance of us as his people, that we don't have to work our way to God, that it's not based on our works, but through our trust in him, through our faith, we incorporate that into ourselves. And that was such a critical understanding for him. As a matter of fact, it was so significant, Adam Hamilton describes really in a form of an analogy, I think, the way that it works. He uses it in his book to describe sin, but I think it applies very much to, to the whole idea of grace. And he talks about how he used to have a car, and a car had one of those pulls. You ever have that one of those cars, and no matter what you do, it's just a little bit of drag, and you just kind of have to keep that hand on the wheel, keeping it in place. If you let go of it, it would veer off to one direction. Well, Adam Hamilton had one of those cars, and I like the, the analogy because my last car was like that. I bought a car, and I got such a good deal on it. Even though I knew it had been wrecked, I decided I'd take a chance. And for the most part, it was a good car. I really can't complain. But it seemed no matter what, I couldn't keep it aligned. I'd get it aligned. I'd get new tires. Everything's great. And about six months later, that pull would come back. That's just kind of how sin is. And then my son calls me up a while back. He says, Dad, my car died. And you know, you got, you're at that new church. You shouldn't be driving that old car around. Can I buy it from you? Well, how do you say no to that, you know? 
So I sold my car. I got another car. And my, how nice it is. It just straight as an arrow. I can be so relaxed. Car just goes. And I'd suggest to you that's what it was like for John Wesley. Once he incorporated grace, once grace became not just something in his head, but in his heart, then his striving for holiness, which is still always hard, just flowed so much easier. It just goes easier when you put your trust in God instead of yourself. That is the justifying grace that Wesley talks about. But here's what I think makes Methodism so meaningful. Because for John Wesley, salvation was more than just that one-time event. It's more than just putting your trust, more than just an altar call, more than just saying yes to God. There's much more after. And so sanctifying grace, as Paul also describes it, is the work of God in you from then on out trying to bring you to the person he's created you to be. And so that involves growth, involves maturing, involves, in this passage it says you are God's accomplishment. God is making us and molding us and shaping us. And the way that we experience that is we put ourselves in those places for those means of grace for God to work, whether it be communion, the sacrament of baptism, but also through prayer and through places of study. Tuesday night I was in the church and I saw sanctifying grace happening. In the church that night there were three different Bible studies going on, so I peeked my head in each just to see how many were there and what they were doing. And I walked into the by rooms downstairs and the Disciple 3 class was at work. And before I even walked in I could hear a bunch of laughter. And when I went in the room I was surprised to see around 25 people. Mike Lawson was leading it. People had their Bibles open. They had their disciple manuals open. Some were taking notes, having things all spread out. And then you could tell they were at work, but they were having fun. There were smiles on their faces. Because that Bible says more than just information, it's community. And that's how we're shaped. We're shaped by one another as we dive into that word. And that was certainly taking place then. That is sanctifying grace. And those things together bring a depth and understanding to salvation, I think, is, is a real gift that Methodism brings to the whole Christian faith. Now, let me stop and make a point that it's important. Before I go on to my next point, I want you to know that part of the reason for this whole series, and especially for this particular message, is that our Fruitful Congregation Journey Ministry Action Plan calls for us to do something very specific. We're called to have within a worship service an understanding of a mandate that we're called to live out our mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ. It happens to be our mission statement. Would you join me in saying our mission statement? Our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. That's the mission statement of every United Methodist in the state of Indiana. That is our mission. But to appreciate how we're to go about that means we have to have the spirit in all that we do. Now next Sunday, right after the last service, we're going to come back in here from 12 to 2.30. We're going to have a quick lunch, and then we're going to work on our visioning. And I want you to appreciate how valuable Wesley's spirit can be for us. 
So far, we've evaluated. We've done a great job of that. You have responded so well. So we understand who we are. We had a group that came together and identified our core values. We listed those. We're showing them on the screen before the service. So we know what we are. We know who we are. But now we need to do the work of figuring out who God is calling us to be. And that's where the visioning part comes in. So next Sunday, we're going to hear from Ann Hanshu what a vision looks like, how it differentiates from a mission. And we're going to hear about how we'll be called to align all of our ministries into that vision, which means we'll have to say no to some things as well as saying yes to who we are. But then it's not just an intellectual exercise. It's going to be a spiritual dimension to it. Because we'll be called at the end of that session to identify what ministry, what passion, what need in the community that we are really feel called to. And we'll group together. And then we'll be asked to go to that place sometime in the next month and prayer walk that particular location, ministry, entity, organization. And take notes on what God is telling us, what God tends to our hearts. So just as a Christian accepts God's justifying grace and then begins the process of sanctifying, that's kind of what we're doing. We figure out who we are, and now we're figuring out who God's calling us to be. Now, so important is to get that sense of John Wesley's spirit where he says, the world is my parish. And the best way I can explain that to you is just kind of tell you a little bit about Wesley and how he came to even come up with that phrase. You see, John Wesley had had his Aldersgate experience that we talked about last week. With the help of Peter, Peter Bowler and the other Moravians, what was in his head now was in his heart, and it fueled him. He went out sharing in church after church this, this new spirit. And unfortunately, not all those churches received him well. I don't know if we can quite appreciate how staid, how stilted, how rational church had become in those days. But apparently, one way to appreciate it is that John Wesley, who was quite an academic, who, if you read his sermons, they're, they're not packed with emotion. He didn't draw upon people's emotions, but he used words to get into people's hearts. But they began to label him not just a Methodist, which happened at Oxford, now he was called an enthusiast. What a dirty term. Enthusiast. It was not a compliment to be called enthusiast in those days. Maybe part of the reason he was rejected is because he would sometimes preach that they were almost Christians. May not have been received so well. And so by 1738... John Wesley was banned from all churches but five in the London surrounding area. All churches but five. And so Whitfield invited him to come to Bristol. Bristol was about 100 miles west of London. And it was, and there weren't very many churches because it was all working class people. Bristol was a, a shipping port in which the slave trade went through. Ships with goods from England would go to Africa and they'd trade for slaves, take them to America to bring back cotton and sugar and other goods back to England. So it was full of people working in the shipyards as well as coal miners. They were the working poor. And so Wesley went to Bristol 
It says on April the 1st, 1739, he went and witnessed Whitfield preaching to 30,000 people in one day. 30,000 people. And so then this is what he wrote in his journal that prompted him to begin his journey of open-air preaching. In his journal, he had these words. Yes, there we go. (laughs) I could scarce reconcile myself at first to this strange way of preaching in the fields. Having been all my life, till very lately, so tenacious of every point relating to decency and order that I should have thought the saving of souls almost a sin if it had not been done in a church. At four in the afternoon, I submitted to be more vile. Love those words. And proclaim the highways the glad tidings of salvation, speaking from a little eminence in a ground adjoining to the city to about 3,000 people. 3,000 people. The largest crowd Wesley had ever spoken to. And so he did it again and again. Still not an easy process for him. It went against the grain of all of his education, everything he knew before that point. But he started to come to grips with it because as he reflected, he realized, where did Jesus do most of his preaching? It was outdoors, the Sermon on the Mount. And so he got more and more comfortable with it. But I want you to appreciate, well, appreciate, number one, how good of an orator he must have been. There's one story told that he was preaching, and sometimes he'd preach as long as two hours. Don't worry, I'll not try that. But one time there was a bunch of people sitting on a wall and the wall collapsed. And because he had their attention so, so rapidly, he just kept right on going. People just kind of assumed that was their new seat. And no, no, nobody bothered. He was, had them hanging on every word. Now, let me explain to you where that phrase, the world is our parish, came from. You see, in those days there was one state religion, the Church of England. And all the, wherever there was a church, there's basically a boundary drawn around it as the parish boundaries. It's kind of like, let's just assume Noblesville First is the only United Methodist Church. That means nobody from Carmel can come and preach in my territory without my permission. And so people would say to Wesley, now wait a minute, you've been thrown out, you can't preach in this church or in this parish. But Wesley was ordained through his appointment at Oxford University, which means he had no restrictions. He could speak anywhere. He did not have to seek permission. And so whenever that would be challenged, he would draw upon that technicality and say, the world is my parish. Now, I hope you can appreciate how hard it was for him to speak at a common level. John Telford shares the story that one time he'd been preaching in a church in the countryside. He had put together and crafted a very excellent, eloquent sermon. But he noticed as he was preaching, people had a blank stare on their faces and their mouths were open. So he doubled down and and began to try to use some more common words. And he noticed that their mouths were half-opened. So he was so frustrated by that, he, he took a servant who was intelligent, Her name was Betty, and he practiced his sermon in front of her. 
asking her to stop him if he used any word that she did not understand. And so, as the story goes, he got very frustrated because she kept saying, stop, sir, stop, sir, stop, sir. And so every time he gets stopped, he'd strike the word out and come up with a better word. And then he brought that message back to that same congregation at another time, and he had their attention. Wesley had that, the world is my Perry spirit. He was willing to do whatever it took to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So that's my question then for us as a congregation, especially as we go through this fruitful congregation process envisioning work. Will we be a congregation willing to do whatever it takes to share the good news? We've kind of made some beginning steps already. I was so excited. I think we had 44 choir members sing at the first service to take that extra time, get up early, and share their gift again. And what a blessing to my heart it was as I arrived and see people parking in the outer parking lots already just to accommodate that squeezing our worship services. That's a great start. But there's so much more we can do. I asked Pastor Aaron and and Brooke Crum, our hospitality person, I said, share with me some of your dreams. If you could have as many people that you wanted to do what you wanted to do to increase our hospitality and make it as warm and friendly as possible, what would that look like? And they have lots of dreams. Uh, if you came early enough, you would have seen Pastor Aaron driving the golf cart around. Got someone else to cover for him during this service, but we need more drivers. And Brooke has shared that when it's raining, she's now bought several Noble Soul First umbrellas that you could walk out there and walk someone in and keep them dry or help someone to extend our hospitality out the parking lot just to help them know what door to come in, help them out if they could use a little assistance getting, getting here. But there's many more. If you kind of walk through our church, you know there's a lot of little crooks and crannies here. If you're here for the first time, it's hard to know where to go. Wouldn't it be nice to have everybody at every corner, at every place to say this is the way to go, especially when somebody's got that blank look on their face. Or we'd love to have, especially in this service, to have every zone of chairs covered by somebody who's just keeping their eye out. If they see somebody they don't know or somebody that that looks to be new, to say, oh, hey, I'm so-and-so, and and tell them, oh, this is how we do the action card. Do everything they could to make them feel comfortable and at ease and at home for this first-time worship experience. And we want to take this hospitality out into the community as well. We're working with Noblesville First, Noblesville Main Street. They put on so many activities, but there's just two staff people, and they need volunteers. And so we're trying to see if we can funnel volunteers for them as they do those community events and draw us together as a people. I was so pleased to hear that White River Elementary. We've had the Kids Hope Program, and last year we had 10 mentors. Gene Morris told me uh, Friday that we now, we think we have 20 mentors this year. We doubled that. What a great difference that'll make in those new kids' lives. But there's so much more we can do. So here's the challenge. And, and I say this especially to this group, probably because i got more time to preach in this service but also because we've got a greater challenge. There's a lot of people in this group. And we have balconies where people can come in and go out and hardly even get a human touch. 
And, you know, we can build hospitality teams all we want, but nothing can replace that willingness of you in the, pew, in the chair or pews, whatever we call these, turning to your neighbor and saying, I don't think I've gotten your name down yet. I'm so-and-so. Just this week, matter of fact, I was at the Elderberry's luncheon on Friday, and there was a new couple that had just started coming, and Mary D. Cutter, who typically goes to the early service, just happened to be here because the weather was not so great out at Teeter, and she took the time to explain about the Elderberry's luncheon and how excited Mary D. was, as well as the rest of us, that they came to that luncheon. That's the kind of spirit we need. To say, not only the world is our parish, but where is my parish? Where are the places that I can reach out and share the good news in ways that I am gifted? That's the call that I believe John Wesley would have for us. It's certainly the same, same spirit we find in a God who sent Jesus Christ to walk among us, God incarnate, to be one of us. The same spirit that the Apostle Paul shared in 1 Corinthians 9 when he said, when I'm with the Jews, I become a Jew. When I'm with the Greeks, I become like a Greek. When I'm with the weak, I become like the weak. Whatever it takes to share the good news of Jesus Christ. May God give us that spirit. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you for your grace that's been given freely to us. And may that become so much a part of us that it just becomes a part of who we are. And we begin to extend that out to others, especially to the stranger, especially to those that need that welcoming embrace. May that spirit infiltrate our church in every way possible so this becomes a place where all are welcome. May the world become our parish. Amen.